This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. Certainly one of the big stories of the day, if not the big story, is Turkey edging closer to a full-blown financial meltdown. We did have a headline just cross. Uh, Turkey saying it will retaliate to the U.S. raising tariffs. This is coming from the Andalou uh, Agency, so we're tracking that. Uh, let's get into Turkey because we've had a lot going on, a lot going on in that nation. Peter Cheer is head of, make, of macro strategy at Academy Securities based in Connecticut in our Bloomberg 1130 studio right here in New York City. Also with us, retired Brigadier General Anthony Tata. He's advisory board member also at Academy and he's on the phone from Alexandria, Virginia. Peter, I want to start with you. You don't own Turkish debt, but you have looked at emerging market debt in the past, have owned it. When you look at this situation, how do you see it? We have stayed outside of Turkey for quite a while. We had a very strong view on the geopolitical side that they were moving away from the West, moving away from NATO. So this has kind of taken on an extreme thing, but you're seeing that FX move. And what really concerns us is they have about $60 billion worth of foreign debt. So, you know, international debt, that's problematic, right? That is a very large amount of debt. It's starting now to impact other EM countries. So you're seeing EM as a whole sell off on the back of this. There will be a buying opportunity. We think not yet and definitely not Turkey. And so, General Tate, I want to bring you in here because you know one of the issues with Turkey seems to be that it wasn't that long ago that we were looking at a situation where Turkey was sort of coming along and seeming sort of progressive. Geopolitically, what's changed here? Yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, they were moving toward, uh, you know, partnership with the EU. They've been a longstanding in, in the waiting line to be a full partner with the EU. And and uh, recently, uh, after the coup attempt, I think er- Erdogan uh, didn't know who to trust. Uh, plus, uh, if you recall, during the Second Gulf War, uh, they denied our passage through uh, Turkey to attack uh, into Iraq from the north. And so there's always been uh, some kind of tension with Turkey. It's a NATO member. But at the same time, it's it's someone who's got the Kurds in the West. Uh, they've got the ISIS fighting along their border uh, with with Syria, and and they're uh, it's three dimensional chess uh, in Turkey, uh, so to speak. And now what we're seeing is a drifting away, as Peter said, from the West uh, and toward Russia, quite frankly. And and I think what President Trump is doing here is uh, w- watching uh, Turkey uh, move toward Russia with uh, by buying missiles from them which is in violation of the sanctions. And plus, they're holding captive an American pastor uh, there. And uh, there are some other uh, issues. And, and, I think, and so I think the president is leveraging his economic power. Yeah, and I think this ties in another reason markets a little bit more spooked. As they move towards Russia, that's going to complicate our relationship with Russia, which is already a difficult relationship. Well, who helps them or who bails them out maybe ultimately? Or is that what you see? Or is that you? Is that where you see us going with I, Turkey? I think, you know, the risk is that they kind of, you know, get more and more embedded into Russia, because mm-hmm. we have missed opportunity after opportunity. You know, I really thought, say, Venezuela, which was having a lot of trouble, we would be the one to go in, fix up their oil fields. As the generals like to say, you know, business tends to follow the flag. And yet it was India that went there and 
just fixing it up, right? So I think we've lost our way on that. We have too many things going on. So I think we run the real risk of pushing, you know, Turkey further away to the east and you know, into Russia, into China, and that well, hurts us. Has the U.S. lost its way or has the U.S. made a choice? And I ask that because you had President Trump tweeting today, here, you know, Turkey's coming undone. Uh, the lira is, you know, tumbling. Uh, and then you have uh, President Trump kind of doubling down when it comes to tariffs, Peter. Yeah, I think a lot of this would fit into what the general has been seeing kind of geopolitically, but we have been stepping back from regions. And, and General, I, I want to bring you in here because to, to that exact point, because it wasn't so long ago, in fact, it could be measured in weeks, that mm. President Trump was at a summit with Vladimir Putin and notably at a recent meeting, you know, was kind of hanging out, to use a technical term, with President Erdogan. So, I mean, this is a very complicated relationship, to say the least. Where does it go from here, in your estimation? Well, you know, I think the president is a pretty savvy negotiator, and, and what uh, he he puts a lot of trust, faith, and confidence in personal relationships. Mm. At the same time, this administration is one of the best I've ever seen at leveraging the elements of national power, which are diplomatic, information, military, and economic. And you can pull each of those levers one at a time or all at a time to get whatever strategic effect you want. And what he's doing here is he's pulling that economic lever uh, for different reasons, because diplomatically they're not uh, backing away from Russia. They're not handing over the captive and so forth. And so he's saying, all right, you want to play that game. Uh, you know, I can I can have a personal relationship with you, but I'm still going to act in America first geopolitical interest. So, General Tate, you don't see that president moves today as reckless. You see them as strategic. Oh, absolutely. Uh, strategic. I, I think the president and his national security team are very strategic. They're taking, uh, you know, every region. You look at the, the number of fires he got handed, and it's not by coincidence that he's taken this strong action against Turkey once we've kind of got ISIS in the bag, you know, we kind of needed Turkey uh, to, from an intelligence standpoint and a military base standpoint to continue the fight against ISIS. We've kind of got that in the bag there in Syria. And now he's taken this strong step where if Turkey reprises against us, it's not as impactful in the ISIS fight. So, so Peter, what do we do from an investor's perspective? How do we read this in the financial markets? I think first you stay away from – Turkey as an investment. I think there's too much, you know, risk that this continues to devolve. Does it spread uh, though? I, I, I contained don't think or so. contagious. I think Peter. it's contained. So I think you're going to want to start adding some EM in the meantime. I think you want to take some money out of high yield and actually put it into EM because if it continues to get worse, high yield's kind of the next to go in line. One thing that I found really interesting is that Bitcoin is actually selling off during this whole, you know, week. And to me, you would have thought in a sort of, you know, emerging markets crisis, Bitcoin, certainly whenever North Korea kind of had something going on, that rallied. So I don't know whether that's completely lost its way, not that it's a true investment necessarily, but that's kind of caught my eye. Away from this, I think the Treasury rally is probably a little bit overdone, so I'd kind of take advantage of that, take some profits there. I don't think this is going to hit the U.S. economy at all. I think the U.S. stock market reaction is about right now, down 1%-ish. That feels about right given the size of this. Right. It's yeah. going to be amazing to watch. General Tate, I'm, I'm expecting that maybe this could be the, uh, the basis for your new novel. <laughs> <laughs> well, You're a best-selling you know, author, after all. Uh, yeah, so our Dark Winter uh, comes out in October. There you uh, go. See, I love authors. They always find a way to, uh, a way to plug. So General uh, Anthony Tata joining us, as well as Peter Cheer uh, here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios, both of Academy Securities. Thank you so much.
that's one way to get into this story, uh, Carol Masser. This, as you said, is one of the most read stories on the Bloomberg. And I'm just going to read the headline. More women making it on Wall Street aren't on the street at all. Talk about a curveball. Let's get more on the story from the author. It is Liz Capo-McCormick. She's one of our rock star reporters and writers here at Bloomberg, joining us on the phone from here in New York City. Liz, great to talk to you. Great story. So give us the dirt here. What's going on? Thanks so much. Uh, So, you know, it's funny, like, uh, Carol was kindly had me on when I had another feature on women in asset management. And after I did that, Jason, and I was saying, wow, a lot of these women who are key fund managers, they're not where you think. They're in this kind of cluster in the West Coast and, you know, kind of Northern California. So I, it kept hankering at me. And then I talked to Laura Lute, that Morningstar, who kind of ran some numbers. And it was it's amazing, like, you know, you saw we have a table in the story that shows, like, they ranked, you know, what – of the firms, the share of named women fund managers out of all the fund managers. And, the, you know, the top firms, Charles Schwab's and Dodd and Cox, were in San Francisco, and there's another nearby. And it's just interesting. So I started, I got John, uh, my co-writer, John Gittleson, out on the West Coast, and we were digging and kind of trying to say, why is this? And, um, you know, we detail in the story that a lot of people say maybe for women try kind of sadly, right? I mean, it should be easier, but trying to crack in to Wall Street on the asset management side, um, it's kind of harder where the kind of the older networks are, let's call it old boy networks, um, even Boston, New York, and uh, not that you have to avoid them by any means, um, but it's just like new areas, and maybe the West Coast is a bit entrepreneurial, so it just was very interesting. It's not kind of what you think for Northern California. Well, you talked to some specific uh, women. Liz, talk to us a little bit about their journeys and what they had to say about it. Well, yeah, that was definitely interesting. Um, you know, from all levels, like I spoke to Barb McKenzie, who's at uh, Principal Global, um, who their firm was just kind of named as a top firm for women recruiting, you know, in general to work, which is nice. Um, but, you know, they're out in Iowa, and I was talking to her, besides her background of kind of growing up there, you know, why did she stay there and why they, you know, you know, have a lot of women named fund managers. And she was saying, you know, their firm has done a lot to, you know, move women up the curve where they need need some, you know, extra help from executives and putting them in that program. And she said a little bit, maybe you, you can't just tap so many people as you would, when, you know, on the East Coast. So they're nurturing talent. And so she mentioned some things even they're doing with the University of Iowa. Now, Christy Mitchum, who is great, who's, you know, top at Wells Fargo Asset mm. Management, you know, she said, hey, Liz, you know, and she's done a lot for promoting women in the industry, said she personally found she she was going back and forth to the, you know, from the, she went to the West Coast for personal reasons, but back east because she felt she needed to be relevant. And we lay out in the story some firms who really did some things and saw her, you know, how important she was and made it work for her with well, her family you, needs. Could I just point out, because this, this stood out for me, you talk about her former employer, Goldman Sachs, who actually mm-hmm. provided a New York apartment for her and her daughter, as well as a mm-hmm. nanny, so she could go, you know, work there full time and flew them back home each weekend. So they really went to great steps to make it doable for her. Right. I mean, Christy said her own words to me were, you know, Golden made it happen. And, mm. you know, she was saying there are many firms. She worked for State Street, and they're great with her. And, you know, that it it is a lot, too, with the culture of the firm, you know, and are they willing to, you know, accommodate different needs, you know. And, you know, she said they made it happen. Well, and it is interesting. I know Christy pretty well. She and I have worked on a number of things together, and she was influential, actually, in a project we did over at Bloomberg Television uh, back on International Women's Day where we essentially had all of our experts 
for that day as women. She is incredibly plugged in. And as you say, I mean, what what I think is so interesting about this story, too, and her specific story is that firms will pay up for top performers. They will go mm-hmm. out of their way. And so as people like Christy and others emerge, firms are, are taking notice. It, it is interesting, though, sitting here in New York that so much of this is happening off of Elsewhere. Wall Street. Elsewhere. Right, right. And it's interesting, you know, as, as well as um, John w- went up to Schwab in uh, San Francisco and met with Maria Chando, who is, you know, Wonderful and very much like Christy doing a lot to help women in the industry. But we spoke to one of her younger colleagues who's, you know, just coming up, this woman at the end of the story, Jane, who was saying how it does help, and you see this in a lot of firms, even uh, Dana Emery is the CEO of Dodge and Cox, that these women coming up saying it's really great kind of what you're saying, Jason, to see women succeeding, you know, um, like women, like you, you become what you see, right? You mm-hmm. say, oh, wow, I see these kind Companies where we have these women at the top echelons, and it's it's, it's motivating. You know, it's uh, I think it's empowering to younger women. Well, it also it's shows possible. it's possible, right? <laughs> like right. If, if she can if she can do it, and she got there, then I can get there. It, there's nothing like seeing uh, a great example. Liz, you know I love your reporting, so thank you, thank you for coming on and chatting with us. Liz Capo McCormick, Bond and FX reporter at Bloomberg News, on the phone in New York. Like who knew, right, Jason? I know. Well, Liz knew. I, I mean, knew. she's a rock star. I really, I her stuff is. Is always yeah. must read. So it's great to see this uh, play as well as it is on the terminal. And interesting to see how well read it was. I think that's yeah. notable as well. I love it, especially on a busy news day. All right, everybody. Yep, we know. We do a lot of shopping on Amazon. Uh, and let me just throw out a number, and it does relate to Amazon, 5%. But the question is, is it a little or a lot? And that is exactly the question our Bloomberg Opinion technology columnist, Shira Ovaday, asked this week when writing about Amazon. She joins us in our Bloomberg 11302. We love this story. This Excellent. was my favorite story. This was officially my favorite story in Business Week this If you're week. going on a summer Ooh, picnic. I said it on the record. You did. <laughs> no Steve Mnuchin? <laughs> cover story? I love the cover story, too. But okay. this this was a very provocative question, yes. Shira. So what made you go dig into this? You know, I I started doing some math uh, in part because our colleagues at Bloomberg Intelligence did an analysis a while ago looking at the total volume of stuff sold on Amazon, which is a number that Amazon itself does not disclose, that they disclose the revenue that Amazon generates. But, for example, if um, Nike sells a pair of shoes on Amazon uh, and Amazon takes a commission, Amazon discloses the commission mission that it makes on that sale, but not the full value of that purchase. So ah. based on some estimates that our Bloomberg Intelligence folks did, you know, I, I kind of dug into how much stuff is actually sold on Amazon. It turns out in the U.S. roughly last year, there was about $200 billion worth of Nike shoes and everything else under the sun sold on Amazon.com or at its Whole Foods grocery chains. And then I was kind of stuck with, is that a lot? Or isn't it? I mean, it's it is roughly five percent of all of the goods that Americans buy every year. If you look at government data. across the board, not just across online, the board, that's a different number. Correct, that is a different. And number. And what is that number? Because that one is surprising as well. That number um, is going to be something like fifty percent wow. this year. That's based on the research firm Amazon Marketer. selling roughly fifty percent of everything sold online in the United States. In that's United correct. States. Yeah. So you know, there's obviously this disconnect right between that five percent number and the fifty percent number, and part of that is it goes 
goes to show that in America, we're still doing roughly 90% of every physical, of every purchase in a physical store. Right. Right. So Amazon is only able to capture that 10% or so that people are buying online. Although obviously that number is going up. And as that percentage of online sales goes up, then Amazon disproportionately benefits if it's getting 50 cents on every dollar. Is it a little or is it a lot? (laughs) Because I'm thinking about it. if I, I own the know. stock, yeah, and we talk about the valuation, it's crazy. Like current right. PEs, I think about 100, 109. Forward-looking PE is almost 200. Yeah, you might say, well, if it's only got 5% of the retail market, look, it can go after the 95% it doesn't have. And so I'm going to pay up and buy this stock. So that's kind of one argument, right? I mean, and that is the bullish case on Amazon is that, look, this is a company that is right now valued at more than $900 billion on the stock market. Right. And part of that is based on the enthusiasm that, hey, if they – have so much revenue and so much market value now capturing 5% of U.S. retail sales and maybe 1% of the globe's retail sales. Imagine what this company could be worth if that market penetration starts to go up. Well, it's also very much in Amazon's best interest, at yes. least when they're talking to regulators, to say, eh, it's just a little. Oh, I'm nothing to see here. Minnow. Yes, it is. It has been very interesting to see that Amazon itself, when it does talk about its market power, it stresses that 5% number. Or they've given slightly smaller numbers, more like 4%. But the point is, it is in their interest to have that number be small when they're talking to politicians and regulators because they can say, look, we're a minnow in this vast sea. We're not uh, we're not overly powerful. We're not – we just and, have this tiny market share. Are they right? Because you also include in your story, you say, okay, so according to Bloomberg Intelligence, you're talking about $200 billion worth of stuff that Amazon sells in the U.S. Walmart sells how much in the U.S.? Uh, I've now forgotten the number, but three hundred eighty-one. Thank billion. you very much. So yes, almost, it's almost 10%, double. Right? It's double their the market share. And as far as I know, at least right now, in the nineties, it was a different story. But right yeah. now, nobody's talking about Amazon being too powerful. The way that the president, for example, has kind of worried about Amazon being too powerful sometimes. And and folks on the left as well, people like Elizabeth Warren, have also talked about Amazon being too powerful. So yes, that market share number does help them. But again. Uh, going back to the Jason Jason's number about the fifty percent, yeah, that's the other way of looking at the market, right? Is that they have an enormous power over this fast growing part of the U.S. economy, which is online shopping. And just to underscore that, Amazon is growing from a top line perspective at twenty five to thirty percent a year, and oh, so you start to think about how that grows, and right. it's not going to be four or five percent for long because right. obviously their growth just doing a little bit of math here, is outpacing uh, the growth of the overall market. Yes, it's something something like four times the rate of, of total U.S. retail spending. So what should we do about this? Like if, if, you're, if you're a lawmaker, if you're a competitor, what do you do with this number? I don't know. I don't know what you do about Amazon on, on anybody's part. I mean, from the competitor point of view, it has been interesting to see Walmart in particular – um, starting to kind of attack Walmart 
where they live, which yeah. is online, right? That Amazon bought Jet.com, which right. was this um, company born in e-commerce, a former am- run by a former Amazon executive. Um, and they have been much more aggressive in e-commerce recently in the last couple of years. So there is definitely more competition for Amazon online than there has been maybe for years. I have a quick question. 30 seconds left here. Will it be ultimately what happens to consumers? Are consumers benefiting by having, by having Amazon in the marketplace? Uh, I mean, look, certainly Amazon has been a boon for a lot of shoppers. I, I'm a Prime member and I yeah. enjoy it. But I mean, um, pricing or do we... The, the secret of Amazon is that their pricing is not cheap. Yeah. It's not the cheapest. And, and I don't know to what extent people realize that or if the convenience of, of Prime and free shipping outweighs the prices. I love this story. Go, I, I, I continue. I only love this story more, having heard more from Jira about this. I'm not kidding. It is a great story. It's a great read. And check it out in Bloomberg Business Week this weekend. Catch Jason and myself on Bloomberg Business Week on radio and TV throughout the weekend. Do not miss it. Shira Ovaday, you are the best. Technology columnist at Bloomberg Opinion in our New York studio. Every day, every day, every day. I don't know if every day, every day he writes a book, but he certainly does have a new book out. Angel investor Elad Gill has worked with the likes of Airbnb, Twitter, Google, so many others as they went from growth startups to well-known brands. He does have a new book out. It's called The High Growth Handbook, and he joins us uh, to tell us a little bit about it from Silicon Valley. He's co-founder and chairman of Color Genomics. And listen, Elad, great to have you here Jason and I want to get into your book, but we got to mention a headline that crossed the Bloomberg having to do with another high growth or hoping to be high growth startup, and that is Tesla. Uh, the CEO, Elon Musk, and advisors seeking a wide pool of investors to back a potential take private of the automaker, uh, really to avoid concentrating ownership among a few large holders. And this is according to people familiar. It's a story that we've all been focused on, rightfully so, uh, this week. Elad, you've worked with a lot of uh, growth startups. When you see the Tesla story and the thoughts of taking it maybe private, uh, I'm curious what comes to mind. How would you be advising Elon Musk right now? You know, it's a really interesting question, uh, and thanks so much for having me on today. I think fundamentally I see a lot of uh, founders in Silicon Valley uh, especially from the 2008 to 2012 time period when they started the company, actually being very wary of going public. And there's almost this con- generational concern about what are the implications or impact of having a public company versus a private company, where obviously you have a few more degrees of freedom when you're private. And so I do think this is a really interesting one to watch in terms of the signal that it's sending to a lot of founders who still are sitting on very large cap, late stage private companies. And so where do you feel like – or actually, let me ask it in a different way, Elad. What does this tell us, this sort of movement tell us about the state of funding uh, in Silicon Valley right now and how investors big and small are looking at going public versus staying private in the age of the unicorn? Yeah, I mean there's definitely an enormous amount of capital out there today, especially relative to traditional levels. So SoftBank is a great example with close to a $100 billion fund. They invested over $12 billion into Uber alone. And so there is an enormous amount of private capital that's available today that wasn't necessarily available five or ten years ago. And so I definitely do think that uh, Silicon Valley founders have many more options than they used to in terms of different capitalization strategies, be it sovereign wealth be it late-stage venture capital or be it a traditional money as well. Hey, what does that mean for innovation and entrepreneurs and new startups when you do have so much money floating around? Does it mean we get a lot of sloppy companies or do we get better innovation? I'm just curious. Are there any trends that result uh, because there is so much money sloshing around? 
I think we kind of end up with both, to be honest. Mm. I think that probably half of the so-called unicorns are dramatically overvalued and shouldn't be worth a billion dollars or more. At the same time, I think there's a lot of very great innovative companies that are doing amazing things. You know, Coinbase's last uh, valuation was was a bit over a billion. Uh, Stripe is another company where I'm very bullish in terms of their long-term prospects relative to their valuation. And so I do think that it's a little bit of a split dynamic right now in terms of amazing companies that will look really cheap in hindsight relative to valuations today. And then, honestly, a lot of companies that have really raised far beyond uh, what they should be capable of in part due to all the money that's available. To be transparent, though, you've worked with and invested in Stripe, correct? Uh, that's correct. And Coinbase as well. All right. So I want to turn to your book. And actually, this is a very relevant quote uh, that that I pulled out. It comes in Chapter 2 called Managing the Board. And you say, if your co-founder is like your spouse, then your board members are like your mother-in-law and father-in-law. <laughs> You're going to see them regularly. Yeah. They're hard to get rid of. And they can have an enormous impact on your company's future. That is an amazing, amazing metaphor. So tell us about this book. You have some phenomenal interviews in here. How did you decide to do it? And, and what should people take away from it? Yeah, so uh, the reason I decided to do it is there's an enormous amount of advice out here in Silicon Valley and blogs or in books like Peter Thiel's Zero to One about the early stages of a startup, but there's actually very little that's been written about the later stages. So instead of going from zero to one, how do you take your company from one to a thousand? And so the focus of this book is really asking, as you start to scale your company up, how does your role as a CEO change? How should you manage your board? How should you buy other companies for the first time, raise late-stage financing or capital? And so there's a whole set of different issues that late-stage companies have to face, and there's very little content around it. And so I wrote sort of the tactical view of how you approach those things, and then to your point, supplemented it with interviews with folks like Mark Andreessen, uh, Reid Hoffman, the co-founder of LinkedIn, Claire Hughes-Johnson, the CEO at Stripe, and others to really sort of provide additional viewpoints. I think the big takeaways are when all is said and done, the complexity of a startup that's growing really fast that goes from 100 people to 1,000 people over the course of two, three years is uh, extremely high. There's enormous complexity. And the key thing you really have to do is ask about what are the people that you need to hire and put into place? How do you find people that can fill out your executive team? And then how do you effectively manage them to take the company to the next level? So only about 20 seconds left. I know it's like asking who your favorite child <laughs> is, but who was your, yeah. your favorite interview or your most surprising interview? I think uh, one of the interviews that really resonated out here was with Claire Hughes Johnson, uh, the CEO at Stripe, and she wrote a um, section about uh, how any uh, how when she joined Stripe, she actually wrote a document about herself called "Working with Claire," and it was all about her quirks as a manager or a leader and how should people best interact or interface with her. Do should they send her email or text? What should they discuss with her and when? And I think a number of people now around Silicon Valley, either founders or executives that I know, have started to write their own versions of those guides. I love it. That's a that's a great piece of advice. Elad Gill, co-founder and chairman of Color Genomics, based in Silicon Valley, joining us on the phone. The book is High Growth Handbook. It's a beautiful book and a must-read. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio.
All right, everybody, time for the drive to the close on this Friday. John Petridis is Managing Director, Portfolio Manager at Point View Wealth Management. John joining us on the phone from Summit, New Jersey. John, good to have you here with Jason and me. Um, let's talk about Turkey. You saw the news this morning, maybe overnight, uh, looked at the impact it had on some of the financial markets and certainly on Turkey specifically. Uh how do you factor this in in terms of longer-term investment moves? So longer-term, there's no factor at all. Uh, if there's volatility caused because of Turkey specifically, I would use that as buying opportunities for, for high-quality companies. But it does give fears of, you know, we're, we're 10 years past the financial crisis, but, Carol, we're, we're lapping 20 years past long-term capital management when you had Fed hedge funds that took on excessive risk and the Russia uh, ruble got devalued, and, and that sent uh, the global financial markets into a tailspin. So the only fear out of something like this is, you know, is there a hedge fund or some sort of vehicle out there that is too far over its skis um, that gets caught with, with this type of reaction, and you have reverberate through the financial markets. But but so far, I don't, I don't see any of that happening. So you don't see European banks or other banks getting caught up in this and their exposure? I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I have to see more disclosure from the okay. banks uh, than speculate. Remember, banks are massive institutions. You know, their exposure to Turkey, particularly at this point in time, I would assume is, is relatively small, if at all, uh, across their loan portfolio. And how does this factor, John, into your general feelings and your models as it relates to geopolitical risk? I mean, I know Iran is something that's been on your mind, and that's obviously more closely tied to oil prices and and their uh, effects on the market. That, that that to me is the key, right? Is 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 when I was very surprised that the market didn't react more negatively when President Trump and the Prime Minister Aaron got into their spat uh, over Twitter a couple of weeks ago because because Iran came out and said, well, maybe you know they would threaten to uh, close off the Strait of Hormuz, which is a big channel for where oil goes through globally. So you know if that were to happen, that would send oil prices skyrocketing, uh, and, and that would be clearly bad for global GDP growth. So uh, you know th- that's the big risk with in that dynamic. So closer to home, we had CPI numbers out this morning. We were talking with our chief economist, Carl Wickadana, earlier, and, you know, he was fairly sanguine about this and and essentially said that, you know, his view and the Bloomberg economics view in terms of the Fed raising interest rates through the rest of the year, September is pretty much guaranteed, December, call it 50-50. What do you make of the Fed these days and and what what does the rest of the year hold? Good question. So I think the first Friday of every month when we have the jobs data, the Fed focuses really on one number, and that's wage growth. Mm. And wage growth has really compressed since that January number when it spiked to 2.9%. I mean, it's gone down to 2.8, 2.6, 2.6, and now we leveled off at around 2.7. So that is going to be the trigger uh, that, uh, that, that makes the Fed uh, move higher. In terms of September, it is going to be uh, – uh, there is some – doubt in terms of uh, will the Fed raise rates. There are two things going on. One, it all depends on what the August uh, wage growth is, if that stays muted again. And maybe that questions uh, what the Fed action is. Two, let's not forget the Fed is a political animal, regardless of it trying not to be a political animal. Trump did appoint Powell. And we do have very critical midterm elections coming up in November. So is it possible that the Fed goes on, uh, 
goes on pause in September, but then fulfills its three-hike mandate in December. Uh, that's a possibility. The other angle with the Fed is what's their language yeah, regarding right. a potential fourth hike in September, and that's going to have a big impact on the market. So does the Fed say, hey, we're done in September, or do they say, well, maybe we're leaning towards a fourth hike in December? Right. Those are all the critical factors. Yeah, we can debate that, you know, kind of back and forth, and I'm sure we will. Speaking of being on a pause, Elon Musk tweeting uh, on Tuesday saying maybe it's time to take a pause as a public company and maybe take the company private. I mean, this has been obviously one of our big stories this week, and it continues to turn up on the Bloomberg terminals among the most read stories every day because there is something new every day. The headline we got today, Tesla saying it's, it's looking to seek a wider investor pool for a possible uh, plan to take the company private, kind of spread it around. Where are you on Tesla? Do you guys have a view? So, A, I love the company but hate the stock from a valuation standpoint. Uh, you're very love concerned. the company or love Elon? Or love no, the car. I, yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I wish Elon Musk would take the path that Steve Jobs used to do uh, when, he was, uh, when he was CEO and when he was alive when CEO at Apple, and that's just get off the calls. Stay out of the public eye and, and be the person that you are, which is an innovator uh, of something that we haven't seen in, gener- in, 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 in many years. You know, uh, Musk is equivalent, is considered equivalent to this era's, um, this generation's Thomas Edison. So there's massive key man risk with Tesla. Uh, not only is the company hemorrhaging cash uh, in a very capital-intensive business, but many people own the stock simply because they can't get enough. They're infatuated with Elon Musk. And if he jeopardized his uh, stake as a CEO of the company because he tweeted out uh, you know, information that was right. – um, before we go into the SEC, you know, the board may be forced to um, to make him step down as CEO of the company, and that was really bad news for the stock. Wow. We'll have to see what happens with that. Uh, I should point out Tesla shares a little bit higher uh, in today's session, and it is still up 2% for the week despite kind of the back and despite forth. Despite all of it. Right? John Petridis, um, thank you. Managing Director, Portfolio Manager at Point View Wealth Management, joining us on the phone from Summit, New Jersey. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.